0: Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irina Manta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice A. Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry.
1: And I'm Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed on this podcast are our own and not our employers, and that goes for everyone on the podcast today.
0: We have a full house today for a very special episode with the hosts of the Top 1% podcast, Ex-Wives Undercover, Liars, Cheaters, and Love Cons, Amber Rasmussen and Athena Klingerman, as well as criminal law professor, Professor Brenner Fasal. We are so thrilled to have with us today Amber Rasmussen and Athena Klingerman, the hosts of the podcast, Ex-Wives Undercover, Liars, Cheaters, and Love Cons, which has been downloaded more than a million times and who have become a TikTok sensation whose story has been viewed millions of times on that platform. Wow. As usual, the links are available in the episode show notes. Little did Athena and Amber know their marriages to con man Brandon Johnson, whom they met on Match.com and Tinder, respectively, would someday lead to a tight friendship and media partnership. And today we want to hear all about how the man with 17 protective orders against him in three states was finally locked up and why it took so long here with us to provide his insights on the workings and failures of the criminal justice system is my former colleague and current Villanova university law professor Brenner Fussell. A hearty welcome to all of you to the Strangers on the Internet podcast. Amber and Athena, why don't you tell our listeners the nutshell version of Brandon's
2: alleged law breaking and where things stand today? Oh man, where to begin? Well, I guess the law breaking would start with me, Athena. I started dating Brandon Johnson in 2007. And thereafter, I definitely picked up on major red flags. Very soon after that, I would say the legal flags started waving. And so... Within the next few years, there were multiple calls from the police, me calling the police department, having them come out, domestic disturbance, things like that. I would say that they never took anything seriously. Although, in fact, the one time they did take things seriously was when I never called them. At the time, I think my daughter was one and a half. I was watching this really aggressive mobster movie with Brandon and she had dialed nine one one, and we had a like a huge team swarm our house with guns to see like if I was like we were being robbed or attacked um they responded then but other than that when I physically called them there was nothing they ever did for me they I felt very belittled by the by the police and Brennan is very convincing so he would buddy up to the officers so it was like okay, Mr. Johnson, like your girlfriend or your wife's kind of emotional right now, but good luck with that. We'll see you later. Um, so he started getting over on the legal system, I believe at that point. Thereafter, I would say moving into the divorce and then to the family law cases. So child custody, the legal system let me down multiple times in every aspect, even when Brandon had multiple criminal charges against him. I had proof. I had multiple statements from other women. I mean, he'd actually even been convicted of uh, charges at this point, but still they sided with him most of the time and did nothing for me. And then I would say there's a lot more to that. But lastly, I would say the fact that there was a court appointed oh gosh, representative to watch over the visits with Brandon and our daughter. And he was able to get over on her and totally manipulate her. And then she would turn in these reports to the judge. And it was just mind-blowing that, you know, statistically, there's so much, there's so many cases with mental health Issues involved with the parents and things like that. I just am shocked that they don't, I don't know, look into things more or the evidence given to them more. Um, so yeah, Brandon was able to get over on me in a major way for multiple years. And then when Amber and I team up, I'll let Amber take over from there, but we fought the system over and over and over. I had breakdowns, Amber would pick me back up. She'd have breakdowns. I'd pick her back up. And then luckily we had um, a great attorney, Bruce, come and want to help us after hearing our story. Go ahead, Amber.
3: Sure. So I'll keep mine pretty short. So by the time I came on the scene, Brandon had finessed his moves, I guess, in the legal system. So when I started dating him, I met him on Tinder when it first came out. I did a background search I did those kind that you go online and you get the background search. His name is very generic, Brandon Johnson. So it literally pulled the entire state of Washington and anyone with Brandon Johnson's name. So of course it's alarming because I'm seeing case numbers, but it won't let me find out what those case numbers are. So I'm like, oh no. So I go to him and I say, "Uh, I just want to make sure I'm safe and this is coming up on you. And he laughs it off and he's so good. And he just says, well, this happens to me all the time. He's like, I would never have the job that I do if I couldn't pass a background check. And these names are just random Brandon Johnsons throughout the state of Washington, trust me. And he gives me a falsified document that was what he used to get his job, which is a fake background report. Faked his education, faked everything. So at this point, which I didn't know, he had about, what was it, Athena 12 or 13- At least 10, at a minimum, 10 restraining orders from the women prior to Athena. Correct. And so none of those restraining orders came up on this background check. So I had no idea. So as I'm now in the fold and not seeing, well, I'm seeing red flags and I'm kind of digging in the court system, trying to find information, it's nearly impossible. Like he would, you know, he's got a mental health issue. He lies a lot. So I'm trying to fact check things of what he's saying against these legal things can't find anything, can't find case numbers. Certain counties have everything online, certain counties don't, certain counties make you pay for information. It's a complete rat race. And he also started falsifying documents. So Athena had gone to court, so she's looking like the crazy person, the crazy ex-wife, and I'm I'm not sure who to believe because he's giving me fake parenting plans fake legal documents of you know various instances so Athena's going no he did this this and this and I'm going but I have this paper and this case number and this site this signed off from a judge you know paperwork I'm so confused you know so he started manipulating it that way so then once I you know figured out all of his lies and divorced him then I got a taste of it so you know I'm going to court I'm trying to file restraining orders he's falsifying emails from me and turning them into court, and no one's verifying them. And I'm mouth on the ground going, I never wrote this. I never texted him this. This is a burner phone, and he's texting it and putting my name. And so, oh, it was absolutely awful. So then I was getting a taste of what Athena had gone through. And then things started escalating. So when we did start the podcast, he faked his own you know, license with his name, and that's when he got more dangerous as far as He would stalk women. He would stalk Athena. He would stalk me. He would stalk any woman. He would, you know, vandalize things. And so, you know, he entrapped me in 2019 in his home and threatened to kill himself and kill Athena. This went to trial. He pled guilty. And, of course, they're like, well, you each get no five-year no contact orders and you guys will be protected. And if he makes one wrong move, he's in jail. Well, that was not the case. He repeatedly violated it in every single way and never even got a slap on the hand just went about his business and we're calling and calling going he did this he did that you know I think Athena you got a text message from saying you're gonna die
2: or something like he threatened to kill me multiple times he would call me from different phone lines luckily another woman uh, the one that he's actually now has sentenced in prison for he was communicating with her on that same phone number. So she was able to confirm that this number that was messaging me was indeed Brandon. And so even though that happened probably, I would say a minimum of a year and a half ago, I got a phone call from the prosecuting attorney locally here about three months ago asking, are you wanting to pursue this and follow through with charges? (laughs) I'm like, this was a year and a half ago. I don't know. It's pretty pathetic, but there comes a point where you feel exhausted with even calling the police. You feel like an annoyance to them because like Amber said, we swear like you go directly to them. If they do anything, we'll be there to get him. We're, we're here for you. We're going to protect you. No, you don't feel like that. They look at you like, "Mm." I'm like, here's a text message. Here's a threat. Here's this. He's not allowed to speak to me. He's contacting me nonstop, calling me, texting me, threatening me, and still to this day, I think there were a few of those incidents wrapped up into his final charge with Amber and myself, but anything after that, nothing. They haven't done one thing. I mean, he's still, like, he was in the police chase with my daughter in the vehicle in December of 2022, I believe, 21 or 22, and still, there's not even a, I mean... Yeah, they still don't have him on anything with that. And if we went to family court, if it wasn't for what he did in California, I wouldn't be shocked if they still gave him visitation. That's how much I distrust the legal system, at least here in King, the King County Courthouse, at least. So
0: maybe we could get a little bit of background from Brenner about protective orders, can you tell our listeners more, Brenner, about how these work? Why it can be so tricky to get one, and why enforcing them can be extremely tough, even once one has obtained one.
4: Uh, thanks, Irina. I I think it's it's important to know that the what's going on in all these stories is is the rights of the in this case abuser against the the person who's being abused, and the right of that person to be able to freely go about the area and their right to the other person's right to avoid that. And so that's, and that, so he has rights and you also have rights and that's, what's kind of going up against each other. And so there's a threshold that you have to have before you can tell somebody, don't come near me. And just speaking from New York, you need to actually show that that person committed a criminal offense. So in many cases, when you have somebody who's stalking you or harassing you but not meeting the legal elements of stalking or harassment they're just really creepy and you don't want them around anymore you haven't raised enough evidence to meet the elements of an offense and you can't go into court so it the the threshold is high and again the technical reason for that is well he has rights to go about the country freely as well so that's what's going on is is you need to to prove that certain conduct has has risen to the level of what that state requires. And that's just going to be hard to do. I think there's just a lot of creepy conduct that does not rise to the level of disorderly conduct, assault, sexual assault, harassment. And nevertheless, the law is not really set up to impose that burden on him as it currently stands. And so that that's basically what's going on. But I think the other things that are going on in your case are um, lack of resources from the courts and the police and so I, I, I noticed that you mentioned King County. So all of this happened in the Seattle metropolitan area. Is that right? So this is a large urban police department uh, with lots of violent crime. How many murders do you think nationally are solved? What do you think the percentage is of solving murders in this country? It's 41%. So 60% of mur- 59% of murders are not solved. Now, you, so you can see when the police in a large city like Seattle are dealing with a lot of violent crime. By the way, clearance rate for aggravated assault is 7%. The clearance rate for rape, according to a recent article, is 2.5%. So you have police. There's a lot of crime. Police are not able to keep up with even the core violent crimes. So they start to take these other things less seriously. They don't have the resources. Uh, they're not even solving all the murders. They're not even solving the majority of the murders. So that's, that's also going on. And so it has to be, I think, a really bad case for them to even think that it's worth them getting involved. And so you say the system has failed. I think the system is just not, at least in a large urban environment, is not adequately resourced. But there also are the legal impediments that I mentioned is that it is hard. You need to prove that this person is basically committing criminal offenses before you can restrict his liberty.
1: So as a non-lawyer, this is Michelle speaking, I want to know, why isn't violating a restraining order, why isn't that a criminal offense?
4: Uh, that is, but uh, to get the restraining order to begin with, he has to have committed. Uh, in New York, he has to have committed what's called a family offense, so stalking, disorderly conduct, harassment. Harassment is, um, is not what you would think. It's not just unwanted contact. It's got to be something more than that. So it's really, uh, to get that initial protection order, You need to show something beyond the fact that this person is just weird or you don't want to have them around.
1: It's interesting, that makes me think of an old movie, I'm obviously dating myself here, but Minority Report with Tom Cruise, where it was like this idea of, can we prosecute or pursue, get somebody off the streets for a crime they haven't committed yet? but that we think they're likely to commit. And so I can definitely appreciate what you're saying there about if he hasn't done anything, then he has rights and liberties as well. But what about once the uh, restraining order is obtained and then he's being in contact, sending these messages like, I'm going to kill you or things like that? Why is that not followed through on? Is that also due to lack of resources or do you have any insights as, as to
2: that?
4: Well, so that is clearly violating the order. So that is a, a criminal offense. Back, by the way, the Minority Report is an excellent example of like you're trying to prevent this person from actually killing you, but you can't get the restraining order because they haven't done enough. They haven't walked up to the line close enough. And so then uh, you do hear stories like this where people are trying or they're saying to the police, this guy's going to kill me. This guy's going to kill me. And the police don't have they don't even have enough to meet the elements of an offense to to then impose the order. And then the person actually ends up getting killed. And there there are many stories like this. And we kind of just say, well, what could we do? You know, there wasn't enough then um, threats. You see this with school shootings as well. So you say, why didn't they respond to the fact that this person texted them and said, I'm going to kill you? Uh, Again, I don't understand why you wouldn't. Obviously, there's a legal reason to do so. Um, Again, I chalk it up to the fact that the Seattle Police Department must be Extremely overworked, and there may be a policy.
2: That is true. They're understaffed for sure. That's their excuse. My sister was um, shot and killed, 2020. She was married for six months. Her case is still open, and they're just wait. They're just now trying to get her file to the prosecutor in King County. And the detective touches base with me. She feels awful, but all she can say is that. Our police department is understaffed. The detectives are understaffed. The The people working here are so stressed out because they are spread so thin that they're leaving and going elsewhere because they can't handle it, which makes it even worse. And even the judges, like during years and years that I've been battling Brandon in all different types of courts, family court, criminal, whatever, a lot of the times like they didn't have enough judges to cover The cases that day like it's insane that a a very large like you said metro city like seattle can't come through it's very crazy but you're right resources is the key i think that's why the ball is being dropped so much brenner like i think you nailed it in our in this case
4: and and it's about prioritizing resources and so they clearly do not see this as a priority there may be a policy uh, in many departments, you have policies about where you'll calls that you respond to. I, I have a friend who's a prosecutor in Baltimore, and she said off the record, the police do not enforce traffic laws in Baltimore because there's too much going on in Baltimore. So you never know if there's something like that going on where unless unless Brandon had shown up to your house, they're not going to They they want you to call when he shows up to your house with a knife. They don't want you to call when he texts you. I'm going to kill you. And so it's kind of, it's it's sad that you think you live in the United States and you listen to Dateline NBC and you have these dogged detectives who, if somebody's murdered or hurt, they spend years trying to figure it out, a, a cold case, right? And then you read that actually, um, no, that's, uh, that's not the case in, in the majority of violent crimes. You're just kind of just a victim. True. Yeah, I
2: would say the experience with The El Dorado County Police Department, the detectives there, was night and day. This is with Rachel's case in California. And they were on it. It, Even the prosecutor, she was emotionally vested in this case. She went after him. And he's scary. He... He'll go after everybody. Brandon will. He did that. Even in Bothell, the prosecuting attorney, she had to get off the case because he found out where she lived and he was doing strange things. And they wouldn't give us the full story. She pulled us aside and told us that for her own safety, that she could not represent the city of Bothell going after him. So same stuff I know was happening in California, but they didn't back down. They clearly had the resources in place and it just makes me sad that there are such differences in the, the legal system and the protection so to speak and the resources for them from city to city state to state county to county it's pretty sad
0: well and el dorado is in in some parts a pretty rich community right i've uh, i've actually spent a little bit of time in that very town because i have a friend from law school who has lived there for quite some time so these are you know, pretty nice houses, right? With pools and well-to-do community, and maybe there, a life ends up mattering more to the state, right? than it matters in other places, which is really, uh, which is really sad and scary. Um, could, could the two of you, uh, Emma and Athena, fill our listeners in on what happened in El Dorado? Because this is important to understand as to where things are today and where, uh, and the fact that Brandon is finally going to jail, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, thankfully, California has much stricter laws as far as stalking goes, maybe because of the movie industry and all that stuff. But, you know, Brandon, I had mentioned earlier that he had changed his name and he was using a fake ID. So once me and Athena started our podcast, you know, started getting out in that Seattle community. So he moved to California and started terrorizing women down there. So this woman, Thought she was dealing with a man that was named Brandon, but had a different last name, and she had no idea who he was. He lied about his career, his his everything. Every single thing was changed. So she actually heard about the podcast. Uh, we linked up with her. We told her everything and said, "Listen, here's all of his criminal background. Here's everything. Please run for your life." She did not because he's very, very good. She stayed around for a good year, but she did leave the door open so that. She would reach out to, hey, Athena, is this true? He's saying this. Hey, Amber, you know, he's saying that he doesn't have these charges. What's the truth? So, long story short, towards the end, she was trying to break up with him and she reached out and she said, You guys, he's showing up everywhere I go. I don't know what to do. Like, I go to the grocery store, he's there. I go to my friend's house, he's there. And we said, You know what? You have to take your car in. You need to check for a tracker. She had trackers on her car, her friend's car, her children's cars. She had a camera under her bed that he put there. He had a camera in the neighbor's yard aimed towards her house. He was unhinged. And so we were walking her through the steps of getting a restraining order, telling her, this is the proof that you need to provide. These are the evidence. These are the steps. You absolutely have to press charges. He already has 17 charges in Washington state, 16, whatever it was. So here's our case numbers. This will, you know, only add to your case that he has progressed and he's getting worse and he's a danger. He had broken into her house. So she had just gone to court that morning in March of last year, got her restraining order. He no-showed. Well, by that afternoon... He was sending suicide messages to everybody, and he was showing pictures of a gun in his car. And so we were calling the police, like, someone needs to track him down where he's staying at the Airbnb. He ended up going to her house. And so he, uh, she had put bars on her windows because he had broken in, and he assaulted her. He attacked her. He, I don't know how much you want, but it was very horrible scene. I mean, he... There was another person. She actually had a friend stay with her because she was worried for her safety. He broke in her house. He attacked her. He was pointing a gun at their head saying, well, I'm blowing blow your, your effing head off. It was it was insane situation. So nonetheless, 911 was called, and they arrested him, and he's been in jail ever since. So just recently, he was convicted. So he's got 10 years in jail, cannot... Peel it. He has to spend about at least eight years before he can try to get out on good behavior. I believe he'll be on the sex offender list because that was involved. It's just it's just a very scary situation. But it it escalated and we have been screaming for years saying this man's unhinged, he's getting worse, his behavior's spiraling, no one listened. Um, until until Rachel, the girl, the most recent lady.
1: I read a recent article about your case. It was by the journalist Melinda Hennenberger, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. And she wrote about it. I believe it was called Brandon's Last Con. It was in the Sacramento Bee newspaper. And it gave a condensed background of everything leading up to the story you just told. And also with the story you just told. Now I also have listened to your podcast. And so I've heard your stories each more in depth. And I truly can't tell you how many times my jaw hit the floor hearing different aspects of this story, but culminating in the last girlfriend's story, where, as you said, he showed up at her place where bars were installed on her window to keep him out. That's why the bars were there. He broke through them. He had, as it said in the article, pre-cut pieces of duct tape or electrical tape cut to the size that you would want to put over somebody's mouth or bind their hands with or something like that. He had the back of his car set up where he could take her out there and handcuff her in the car and, and kidnap her. And do God knows what. And it truly sounds like the only thing that saved her was the fact that she had somebody there with her that night who he did not anticipate being there. And it was it was truly just so alarming to read. Also, Miss Hennenberger's articles started off, or at least somewhere throughout it, kind of talking about, as you mentioned, all the numerous restraining orders, which what got up to 17 or something like that. And and so these things compile over time. And it truly does sound like he has learned throughout the years where the resources are lacking in these different law enforcement areas because he understands what laws he can break without repercussion. And so he's just been doing whatever he wanted. The fact of having that many restraining orders didn't actually do anything. What it ultimately took to have him face any kind of meaningful consequence for this was to attempt to murder somebody. And in fact, maybe the only reason she was believed on that is because she had video with audio, if I'm understanding she had installed cameras because of him. And he tried to talk his way out of this one too. He was just less successful in this case because she had audio and she had a witness to back up what's happening. It was truly terrifying reading what all would have to happen in order
2: to be believed
1: in these kind of cases.
2: Can I make a comment on that? Yeah, yeah. I think this is really interesting, but during the interrogation, we were working before the attack. We, Amber and I both were in communication with the detectives, Chris Macris being one of them who was outstanding. And so the morning of, you know, I was getting these videos and images, and so I'm just like sending them to him going, make sure she's okay, because that morning she had gotten that order, the restraining order. But the interesting part is that when all this goes down, they bring him into custody, Chris tells me that they play good cop, bad cop even. And so they have this laptop closed and Brandon's going, oh, I would never do that. Like, it's a lie. He has no idea that Rachel put video cameras in her bedroom after finding the hidden one under her bed. And so he's just going on, ask anybody. I would never put my hands on anybody. Like uh, my mom was, my mom was abused physically and I am 100% against women ever being touched and and they're like okay like this must be crazy for you like we'll get to the bottom of it so they just let him open up and talk 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 then finally they open up the laptop with the video of him grabbing her by the throat throwing her, her into the wall strangling her punching her same with the guy I mean Brandon literally only I think the gentleman they really thought it was an actual gun because it looks exactly like a gun, but it was a taser. I think at that point, like in the article from Melinda, he basically, they thought, if I don't do anything, then we will both die. So this gentleman jumped up as soon as he thought maybe this was a taser, not a gun and grabbed Brandon and took him down. But they had to literally put him like in a sleep chokehold to knock him out because he was so ramped up. He would not, he would not stop. And they like, try to get him outside and then it started again and but i mean i'm saying like that is showing some serious manipulation he thought he could get away with it just like he did here all these times but no those detectives they had that video and oh i can't wait to get a hold of that video the interrogation video we're still waiting on that but i just thought i'd throw that fun fact in there (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, honestly, I'm glad you did. Cause I didn't even I was like, I don't even know what
1: my question is. I have about 12, but I really just wanted to highlight how absolutely unbelievable this whole thing was and how tragic it was that it would take that, all of that, that confluence of things, for him yeah. to finally yeah. face any consequence.
2: Yeah, he thought he was gonna get away with it, with his schmoozing, until they're like, Boop, uh, watch this video, sir. And then he like goes crazy. I didn't do it, freaking out, and they're like, eh. So that's why the title of uh, Melinda's story is perfect. Brennan's last con, but I do like what you say. Um, I do like how Melinda kind of wrapped up how he was claiming, why didn't I get help? And I think that can be misconstrued because yes, those are valid points, but on the flip side, Brennan will say whatever he needs to say to play it up. He will change his own diagnosis to non-existent to like, multiple personalities if he could so the reason why he's saying that at the end somebody should have stopped me i think that is all bs and just talk i don't believe it is the truth somebody should have stopped him that is the truth but i don't I think it's very valid coming from his mouth.
1: Absolutely. That's why i stopped him. Conflated. Compl- <laughs> right, <laughs> right. I was just going to say that little. Him. <laughs>
3: Absolutely. His two worst nightmares just came together. So, Well,
1: that's what it took. Yeah, yeah. And I think that really speaks to the importance of if there are these lack of resources around, what are we going to be able to do? A, to understand that, which Brenner is here to help us with, and also B, to combat that. I'll have some follow-up questions, but I want to make sure other people have a chance to get in on this chat.
0: And I actually, I'm going to, Michelle, I'm going to say something that ties to what what you're, uh, where you're going with this, I think, Um, which is the following. Okay, there is a lack of resources. I think we all know that we can all agree. And well, there, the answer is society is going to have to decide whether it's willing to commit more resources. One other fact that I often bring up in my work, right, is that we know that there are dozens or hundreds of thousands of rape kits sitting around labs in the united states that go months or years without being processed and then when we say oh there's not enough evidence well that's because we're not processing the evidence and again like that's because we're not willing to put in the resources so that's that's a societal problem but then there are things that i'm gonna see are not resources problems so for example the fact that family courts are acting oftentimes the way they do when it comes to custody questions that's not a resources problem. Uh, that's a problem, oftentimes, of not believing women, right? And so that question of belief. Now, you know, Brenner, you're not a, a family uh, law professor, but but this question of disbelief belief also ends up becoming relevant in a number of other contexts and in the criminal justice system, which is your your uh, bread and butter. And so I'm wondering what you think about how we can better educate cops and judges and juries about things like narcissists and sociopaths who all seem to have such a gift for lying like what what do we need to do about that portion even if the resources portion is one that's going to take a while to fully address two two,
4: two parts so that the the lying cop uh yeah i mean
0: the line to the the lying to the cops, right like the lying to the cops oh yes oh, where okay. the cops don't understand the cops and the judges and the juries see this guy he's very right, polished right Right. He's very put together when he needs to be. Um, I'm sure you have met some people at some point in your life that are like that, too, um, that are just very good at like telling lies and and getting people to believe them. Uh, So Mm -hmm. how do we educate the criminal justice system and the actors in it that, hey, there are these narcissists and sociopaths who
1: will look you straight in the eyes and will lie to you? And like, yeah, I mean,
2: I think to that that
1: runner too? Do you think part of what comes into play there and also what we might need to educate people on is then on the flip side, we have these women often or victims, whoever it may be, who are upset and they are not polished and collected. And that's because they're distressed and traumatized by what they've been through. But that also seems to be almost a rationale for disbelieving them or for thinking that they can't be a reliable source. And so I'm worried that whether it's the police coming to the scene or a judge in a courtroom or a jurors in a courtroom disbelieving a victim because they are upset. Could you speak to that, to both ends of it, like the narcissist slash sociopath end and also to the victim end?
4: Well, I think we, we should probably mostly focus on the police because that's that's there's no transcript of that, unlike in a court. And uh, so just think of how much power and discretion that officer has who's responding to that home. Where a domestic violence call has been made, and these are people who are making what we say in the law is a credibility determination. Who's who? So you're saying she's there's an argument that she's lying, and others are saying there's an argument he's lying. Uh, And you have somebody who's basically trained to trained on traffic stops, use of deadly force, a little bit of criminal investigation, but really not that much training to become a police officer. Certainly less than a four year degree. And uh, how would somebody like that? They don't receive psychological training I'm not aware of any uh, I'm not aware of that occurring where I mean where they're actually trained on some of the mental disorders um, that are occurring we know there have been criticisms of police having too much responsibility to do, to do too many things and they're not trained to do th- these many things and this is part of criminal investigation is assessing credibility but it's not really something that, you would almost need a, a trained psychiatrist or psychologist to actually do this. And your, your officer on the street is certainly not going to be one of these people. So a sophisticated NPD person is going to be able to outwit your officer on the street. There's no doubt about that. And I, I mean, it, it's interesting, Michelle, because I do think sometimes emotion is actually seen as evidence of credibility, that this person is not faking it. So I don't know, I, I think it's it's hard. I do think I want to bring up something I sent to Irina the other day, which is a law review article by uh, Kim Furzan at UPenn. And she said, when we say, what does believe women mean? She says, the fact that a woman says something happened is itself evidence. Now it's not definitive evidence, but there's no such thing as definitive evidence. To, To say that you believe women is to say, if someone says this happened to me, that is evidence that that happened. You're not going to start with a presumption that that's a lie. You're not going to start with a presumption of skepticism. It is evidence. It is testimony, and maybe maybe there's the other person who's going to say something, but but it is evidence and it should be treated on an equal plane with with other evidence. So there's a lot going on with your question, Michelle. I don't really I, I don't know if police are if we should ever expect police to be that sophisticated. Judges, I think we can expect more from judges. But for the police officer responding to that initial incident, we we might be asking too much for that person to actually be able to assess when somebody is a sophisticated narcissistic personality disorder person that that, uh, seems to elude the officer on the beat.
1: I would say at least that inspires me because after having heard each of your ladies' stories, this is definitely an area that as a psychologist, I want to know what more I can do to help. And if some of that involves training police on how to spot some of these signs, I want to let you know, this is a helpful piece of information to understand, okay, what can we as people do to make this different? And, you know, it's not a satisfying answer to hear. It's too much to expect that from police. And so if, if that's how it is, okay. But I think then that's something that's incumbent upon us as a society to Change And so whether that's formal education that we want to push for our police officers, having volunteers such as myself being willing to offer that information, that's really helpful. But when it does get to the court level, is there anything further you would want to add there, Brenner, about what we can do to protect victims of domestic violence once it is in, or I guess, in the family courts?
4: Oh, so two things. First, I mean, I agree with you. There's no reason why this can't be part of the training that they receive. I just think if you're getting to a very sophisticated psychiatric analysis, that's, that's, you're not, I don't know if we can expect that, but, but maybe some courses, right? If this person is seeming, I don't know. I mean, Michelle, what would you say to look for? Is some, is it, is being too polished an indicator? What's something that an officer should look for?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I would look Hot at something, know. something like that. I honestly think what you said about the presumption of nobody calls the police for nothing would be a good place to start. Now, maybe they do, but to start with the presumption of somebody saying something happened and then look for evidence to, I guess, both support that and evidence to suggest that the opposite may be true. So be willing to look for evidence in both directions, I think would be helpful. But yeah, I mean, I think looking at how somebody's demeanor is. And I guess essentially what comes a little more easily to me is maybe even less training on narcissism, maybe more training on when somebody is upset not to be dismissive of them. It's encouraging to me to say, Brenner, that in your experience, that's not what you think happens or what you have heard but it sounds like from some of what athena and amber have shared when the police have come to like their house or things they're just like oh your wife seems upset so you know why don't you take care of her it makes me think back i know this has been a long time now and maybe we've learned about it learned better but like the jeffrey Dahmer cases where the one victim was essentially returned to him because he was acting all cool calm and polished about it and the victim was i think english was not his first language he also was like probably brain damaged from what jeffrey Dahmer had been doing to him. And so people who cannot articulately speak for themselves in the moment that I wonder if it if it is a potential risk factor. But then also, I wonder if there's a gender dynamic to it as well, where what distress might look like in females to a typically male cop. Uh, and, And I know that's painting with broad strokes, because I know not all cops are males, not all victims are females, but there is this sense that I get. And from what I've heard from your stories about the women not being believed from the beginning, maybe it's something that's changing, but I would, I would hope that part of the education is let's not write off somebody just because they're emotional.
2: True. And, you know, working, I've worked a lot with the police, sadly, but I guess there's benefits. And I've decided to ask, be straightforward and ask a lot of questions. When I started getting so frustrated, I would ask the patrol officers that would show up at my door, how does this work? What can you see in your patrol car on that screen? And I found out that i had asked one officer here in Bothell, I believe it was, that exact question. And he said, when I show up to the scene, most of the time it's just the call that comes in a lot of the time. That even takes a minute to even get a background on somebody. So, I mean, how beneficial would that be if they could invest some of our tax dollars or whatever it might be into getting better equipment that actually shows a quick, like, maybe red flag bullet point to pop up on the screen regarding this person where they're going to a specific call? Like, domestic violence call, it should show a history in... I would say not even again another issue it's even if you try to look into it you have to search each county for the police and the judges why aren't they seeing all of it you don't yeah yeah I, just, I will tag to that because know.
3: right like we did not know this but when you go to court they're only seeing an isolated incident they're not seeing the whole entire history of Brandon so we learn that very quickly oh gosh and every single time we go to court it's a new judge starting fresh. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't know the whole background. So we had to put these one pagers on the top of like, here's everything, but here's the case specifically. Yes. (laughs) So we had to teach ourselves like, oh shoot, this guy's not going to know anything. And we look like petty women. They're tattling. Like he, he said, he's going to kill me in this text message, but they don't know that there's 17 restraining orders and they don't know the history of, of him because they're new to it. Every, every judge, it was a different one every single time. Brenner, like, what would you do like if your client was giving you fake documents that you didn't know were fake? So as the victim, you're standing there and you're listening to his ju- his lawyer just attack you and tell you you're these horrible, lying women. And here's the evidence. And I'm just sitting there like so flustered going, that's not me. That's not me. And and there's no way to verify who wrote that email, who texted that, because they don't have the time and the energy or no verification system to say this was from her phone it's, it's a, a burner phone that he's creating these texts, printing them off, turning them into the court. You know, he takes an old email of mine. He'll forward it to himself. Then he'll change the to and from, the date, the timestamp. So it looks like it's a legit email from me. So that's where we start getting flustered is we really do look like the bad guys. He's standing there and he's so calm, cool, and collected. And we're like, no, that's not true. And I'm dying right now. This is... I don't even know, you know. But as a lawyer, you're just standing there like you have to believe your client. You're working for your client. So he's got these guys that are, you know, going to bat for him and we're just like, ma'am, ma'am, calm down, ma'am. Wait your yeah. turn, ma'am, and we're just like, ah, I'm
2: gonna lose my mind. Well, you Amber, know on on that note, I started really giving it thought about what we could change as far as, you know, things going on in court. And I started thinking about all of the sleazy attorneys Brandon hired that I blatantly watched them lie. And it wasn't just because he got, they helped him get off. They were probably fooled too, but there were a few that were sleazy, awful, awful. And so my thought was, what if, you know, whether you, okay, let me rewind. What if the attorney held a little bit of accountability for their client's documents that were turned in on the case or, um, medical records. And what Amber and I had to do finally was get our attorney or and I believe it was the prosecuting attorney for Bothell in this specific instance. She requested from the judge that they were verified. Brandon was not allowed to physically hand them to his attorney to turn in. They were verified from The medical office with the cover sheet sent in faxed. They were phone numbers that were called. They spoke to people. They were verified. So what if an attorney was held responsible or liable somehow for not making sure that this person that they're representing? And I know that can't do that for everybody, but what if you walk into a case and you were able to say, I would like to red flag this case and red flagging this case meant I would like all of these things to be verified because he has a history of fraudulent stuff. I mean, anybody, both parties could could request that. And then maybe the advocates that help people who are pro se, who are self-represented, maybe they're trained on cluster B personalities. Because I see, I went to Washington State's like mental health booklet and it was all about helping people who were, like, schizophrenic or who couldn't stand, who were competent, couldn't stand trial, but it didn't say anything about con artists who are getting over on the system. So I just think that needs a whole educational aspect. Michelle, I think you need to create that, and then you teach everybody. <laughs> I'm on board. I'm like, I don't
1: know. constantly thinking of what I can do here. Brenner, what do you think of Athena's idea or anything else towards this, like, why isn't there more efficient information that can be where law enforcement and judges and things like that can pull up information. Because as you brought up earlier, Brenner, with having to make that credibility assessment, wouldn't it be easier to do that if you could have access to, wow, there's lots of incidents of this person lying numerous times in the past. And then, yeah, once you get to court itself, it's it's insane that they can't have access to all of this prior information. And I love Athena's idea. I wonder what you're going to say about it, about could lawyers be held accountable for their clients producing falsified documentations?
4: So I, I think it's a reason to be optimistic. The, the technology is reason, just as technology is enabling people to do things and hurt people in the way that he was using technology when he uh, was on the apps and scrubbing people out of his pictures. And so he was using technology to victimize. And, but I think technology is going to work also to protect in the sense that we shouldn't – maybe we can't expect – it's going to re- alleviate the scarcity problem. I mean maybe we'll have – he was tracking your car. Maybe we should track him. So you could imagine a, a law in the future where people who are this these kinds of recidivists with respect to stalking uh, have ankle monitors, and then it alerts – if they come near you, so technology is advancing on this, and there's a lot more location tracking that I think can work to protect people. So it's called e-carceration, uh, electronic incarceration. But basically, you know, you could imagine an ankle, bl- having a lot more ankle bracelets on people who have uh, restraining orders, and then that doesn't require us to expend money on on the police as much or on prisons. It's just they've they forfeit their right to kind of have that privacy. But I don't know. I think that's a that for a, for a serial recidivist like this person, maybe that would be appropriate that he he needs to be tracked more because uh, he's clearly violating court orders, et cetera. So, so imposing a burden on defense attorneys to investigate, I don't support that. I, I know it's it's hard for you Come because on, you're, not, you're not represented and they are dragging you through the mud, but they're just doing their job. And, and le- I mean, unless there was reason to think – that it was forged, like if it was like in crayon or something, and an attorney took that and brought that up to court, that seems like the attorney's being negligent. But sophisticated forgeries, do we want defense counsel to have to lose their bar license if they're not running that through forgery detection services? I don't think the burden should be on the defense counsel. Maybe, maybe you should just, we should have more lawyers representing people like you. So you're not alone on the other side of the aisle and your lawyer could say she's not crazy and that document is forged <laughs> you know i mean yeah
3: it's it's a it's this vicious cycle of like how to i mean it's an opportunity right to solve problems but to your point about ankle monitors Brandon knows how to get out of them so we actually during when he threatened to kill athena and we went to court he was ordered to wear a monitor googled youtubed it got out of his, you know, his ankle monitor, went to Cal or went to Arizona with a new girlfriend. We had proof. We had plane tickets. We had pictures putting him there. We had everything. And they and all the court said, ladies, we checked the monitoring service and it said he was in Botha, Washington this whole time. And we're like, did you not see the plane ticket with his name on it? like the pictures of him in Arizona. And we looked like fools. And we were just dying. And his girlfriend later confessed, yes, he he YouTube how to get off out of his ankle monitor, and he got out of it. So it's like he's always one step ahead. Yeah, he's like true. Put the little rice size rice thing like you do with your dog because like he'll probably dig it out, honestly. like He's he's always one step ahead. He's a con artist, and so our courses, I don't think they're equipped for it. No one is until you go through it, and you're like, I don't know what to do. No, but putting it on someone else, even something as like you know, handing your – instead of placing it on the attorneys, don't we have technology where you can hand your computer and your phones over ahead of time to sweep it, get the information out, sign off, like some company or something. It seems like something could be invented where, you know, you could get the verifiable information off of it um, instead of going, here's a PDF of the screenshot of whatever and it's totally fabricated.
0: There are methods to do some of these things. It's just that they're right. often like expensive, mm-hmm. involve expensive experts and so it's it's also something where like it, it might not happen immediately, right? Like it might be something that takes longer, but I mean there are other questions that I think you raised a few minutes ago about, you know, why are the records not more centralized? So I mean, I think this is a question for for Brenner. Is there a way without running into federalism issues or like other sort of issues with people's rights, et cetera, to like centralize at least, look, maybe we can't do it across the entire country, but at least within one state, uh, that, that it should be a near immediate access to whatever, like if there was a protective order taken out in Seattle that in like Tacoma, Washington, that they should be able to see that immediately. Is that, I mean, is that not feasible?
4: No, it's totally, I mean, with the internet, it's totally feasible. This is another reason that that uh, uh, technology will help is, is sharing of information. So there's no reason that that can't, we can't have more information. Um, for example, so police officers are now mostly typing in reports as opposed to uh, triplicates. So that only happened in the last 15 years, right? So you have a lot more digital data. There's no reason that that can't all be collected. And uh, it's just that they, I think there's not, uh, think about it as the system is so siloed. The system is siloed by state, and then the system, the states do not really cooperate with each other. And then the system is siloed by county jurisdiction. So within, a, and then within police departments. So it's just a bunch of silos. There's no reason that there can't be some big program that collects everything. And so maybe that's something. I mean, if you look at the crime statistics out of the FBI, there are crime statistics that are national. They're not very like fine grained, but there is some national reporting that's going centrally to the for the entire country. So that could happen. Uh, there's no reason to think it won't happen, or it can't rather. <laughs> uh, it's just like you said, Irina, what do we think is a problem? This is back to politics. What do we think is a problem? What do we want to spend money on? And I have to tell you, I haven't heard... This discussed as a big concern lately. What do you, what gets people really excited? Mostly punishing pedophiles. That is always politically popular. But So sex, sex offenders are also very unpopular. So you'll sometimes see people campaigning on this kind of a thing. But I, I am not aware of any district attorney that's campaigned on a record of trying to improve domestic violence. I'm I sure I'm wrong, but I have not heard that. I don't know if anyone else has seen that. It's just not a politically salient issue, in my view. And these are keep in mind; these are elected officials in most states, or in in every state, really. I mean, um, maybe maybe one state there's not elected prosecutors, but the chief law enforcement officer, the prosecutor, is elected. So they're setting the priorities,
1: and we need to set the priorities for them if we're gonna elect them. So I guess that's part of the message too, is if we're saying this is a salient issue to us as citizens, then maybe we need to make that known so that when people do run for offices, you know, that becomes a factor that they wanna address. So this is helpful because it helps us think about as individuals, what can we do to help change the system?
0: Well, and really, I mean, I'm gonna echo Michelle here, but essentially what Brenner is telling us is this is a popularity contest. That's what every election is. And then you have to figure out what's popular with voters. And then the next question is, all right, why are these often women's issues not important to a lot of people? So domestic abuse is uh, a, a quite common problem in a lot of countries, including the United States. It happens to a lot of people. If you look at the percentage of people that have been either domestically abused or sexually abused or some combination thereof, it's a lot of people. So why isn't it a priority? Well, oftentimes it's people who are not politically powerful themselves, right? Uh, and, And then there's also the stigma element, right? Like often people don't want to talk about the things that have happened to them. Then they go to the cops. The cops are not sympathetic. Then they want to talk about it even less. And it just creates this sort of downward spiral. And I'm hoping that one of the things we can do through this episode and, and frankly, our entire podcast that Michelle and I run is to destigmatize some of these issues, to talk about some of the stories that are happening to to people, including a lot of women out there, to get the these stories out there, to also have conversations with scholars like Brenner to say, hey, like here's what's happening in the streets, right? Like here's what's happening, and why isn't this stuff being discussed at more scholarly roundtables, yeah. right? I mean. Look, I feel like sometimes, sometimes the academy can be very practically focused, and other times the academy can be, you know, some like theoretical la-la land uh, where, where they're talking about things that really don't pertain to the, the problems of, you know, real people. Uh, so we want to we want to find somewhere like a happy happy medium somewhere there, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with theory, but uh, it has to still, I think, be attached to attached to the real things that are happening, and and so. At the end of the day it brings us to a, a big question which is how do we get people to care about women and the things that happen to women and that is a i think lifelong work for for all i've us, got a concerning right? follow-up
1: question for this this has haunted me since i've learned it how do we get people to care about women and the things that happen to women that victimize them well we know within this past year the Tinder Swindler documentary came out, and I believe it is Netflix's most popular documentary ever. And it talks about these kinds of issues, women being victimized. There was an audience for that. When I heard Amber and Athena's story, which also Amber and Athena's podcast, of course, is dedicated to raising awareness and having conversations around these issues. But when I heard your story, I thought everyone who was into the Tinder Swindler would want to hear this story. And... I'm like, how is this not already on like some documentary somewhere? Why am I only hearing about this? The podcast is fabulous, but as popular as streaming services are and things like that, I was expecting that you guys would have gotten interest in making a documentary about your story. And can you guys tell me, tell us what you told me about why that hasn't happened? What what kind of pushback you got from some of the streaming services?
3: Well, so when we first started the podcast, I believe it was 2020, is that right? October, November of 2020. And by February, we were contacted by a TV production company, love the story, thought this is great, we got to get this out. We shopped it around, we're still shopping around, we're actually with a different agency now, but some of them were saying, did anyone get killed? And that was a prerequisite. If you didn't kill someone then they're going to pass. And even recently, he didn't kill her, but he tried to kill her, but that wasn't quite good enough <laughs> for some of them. So it's just, you know, it has to have certain amounts of violence in order to even get past the red tape.
1: And as you said, um, so it's disappointing. Amounts certain it's amounts, funny. like death. Mm-hmm. Somebody has to die in order for us to decide to care what happens to women. I mean, it's, it's shocking to me. And I also don't think it's representative. I mean, certainly I'm no marketing analyst or anything like that, but the women I know, and I think there are lots of women who would be very interested in hearing your story. And I would hope it wouldn't just be women, but I certainly think for our own safety's sake and learning from these kind of things, women would be very interested to hear your story and to know What could happen so that it doesn't have to result in death? So I'm happy to hear that there is a company, it sounds like maybe you guys would be moving forward with. I can't wait for your story to have a broader audience, but I think that has to be part of what happens is there has to be a social conversation before the laws or policies are going to follow.
3: You know, I think it also brings up a point of, you know, when we started the podcast, it was because we were desperate to get this story out because we weren't being taken seriously. We were shot down over and over. More and more women were getting victimized by this person. And then our abuser, essentially, like he was wanting to take away our free speech rights. So he did try to take us to court to shut down the podcast, to slap restraining orders and harassment orders on us and silence us. So thankfully, we had a really good lawyer that stood up for us, but it was just another way for him to shut us down and silence us and keep us quiet. And it, it helps to have another person in. And if it was just me or just Athena by ourselves, there's no way we would take on this yeah. craziness. But together, you feel a little more powerful. And then having our community of listeners makes us even more powerful. But even saying, shut up, don't talk about this, is disheartening. Or like with the Tinder Swindler, it's, well, you signed up for it you you know you dated him you married him you had children with him like it's it's you kind of get a little bit of both and it's kind of eye awakening but it's kind of a work in progress and we're not stopping at this point we we're passionate about this topic and you know sometimes you have to go through this crappy, hopefully I can say that, bad situations before you can see where there's holes of places that need to be fixed, you know, like probably no one knew about fake documents until, you know, we went through it and no one knows about this. No one knows about restraining orders. You know, it's it's definitely a huge learning lesson and an eye-opening opportunity.
2: I know. And you know what? It's interesting because back to like the fraudulent document thing. He, Brandon would keep pushing out his court dates over and over because he would just submit on his own a document that said, I have COVID (laughs) or I have COVID, I have COVID. He kept using the COVID excuse to push it out. It was, it was insane how, because of the HIPAA law, you know, you can't really verify a lot of those medical documents. So I don't know, but I think that uh, perseverance, like Amber said, having one another to back each other up when we're so you know, just at our wits end and feel like we can't do it anymore. Um, Having somebody to kind of encourage us to keep going. Uh, My sister's death fueled this. We were afraid of the retaliation from Brandon, but after she died, it was, we both decided, Amber and I, that, It was time that we put our fears aside and we need to start helping other women um, or any uh, or men in this situation, create awareness. And now that we're doing this, you know, spinoff where we're telling other women's stories, it is absolutely shocking how common this is. And as far as the politics go, I can't help myself to add this one little piece in. Maybe it's not talked about as much because they would be embarrassed because there aren't very many things in place to protect women in multiple states, you know? So if they had to shed light on it, they wouldn't be looking so good. You know, these people in, in charge. So Amber and I have taken that, uh, we're going to take that responsibility and we're going to shed some light on it and draw some attention because clearly media is the only way to let light a fire under some of these upper individuals, you know, the higher ups bottoms. So, um, <laughs> I think we're on a mission and we're just going to keep moving forward as long as we can. Wow, what a powerful
0: message, uh, really, for, for everybody to think about. And I, I want to give the opportunity to Brenner if you want to add some final comments about what we heard today.
4: Yeah, I, I and again, reason to be optimistic. We're talking about political change and, and how it's important if you want the law to actually protect you to actually have a political movement to get the law to care about you and Irina, you mentioned the challenges with that um with respect to this area but i work in military criminal law and over the last 10 years uh, there has been a major shift and increased attention to sexual assault in the military and certainly it was always happening a lot uh, but the there was not a, a focus. Reformers were not thinking about it as a singularly important issue until 10 years ago. And now it is seen as the, the main issue. And you've actually had major legal change in the last few years. And why is that? I mean, it's basically because a few very powerful US senators decided that this was their issue. And that, that's the story there. And so I think I think for political change, you ought, you need to have powerful elected officials to buy in. And it's not politically popular. So you have to almost find somebody who's like a true believer. And with the military, it was Senator Gillibrand in New York. And so it's, it's, it's optimistic in the sense that um, if you find somebody, and sometimes it's empathy because people, have, maybe there's an elected person who's experienced this and is then willing to spend years and years to actually get laws changed and laws passed Um, maybe maybe you should try to to find that person yeah that thank you well
0: i think we're all going to be trying to find that person or the people that are going to move uh move this forward so thank you so much to all of you amber and athena for telling your story brenner for giving commentary on the uh, scholarly facets of all this of the criminal justice system and uh, this is a been a very uh, exciting episode. I'm sure our listeners have really enjoyed it.
1: And hopefully they got powered into some activism.
3: Yes. Thank you so much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. So much fun.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. There's no the in there. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, or Mastodon, where we are on the Falsedon server with two S's. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Frini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Kujuku for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye.